Welcome. This is episode 138 of The Professor and the Hack. The year is coming fast to an end, Professor Peter Van Onselen. It is. Well, the parliamentary year even faster than the year, Hugh. True enough. And uh, probably remembered for the final week, even though it's been a busy kind of a time, for the scene of the censure motion against Scott Morrison and his defence, if you can call it that, of his behaviour in taking on those secret ministries. What did you make of it? Well, I, I think it's significant. I know that the coalition have tried to, by and large, Bridget Archer aside, maybe Karen Andrews as well. Bridget Archer voted for the censure motion, as I understand it. Karen Andrews abstained. The rest of them said that it was a political point being made by Labor and this was politicisation, so therefore they'll vote against the censure motion on, on that grounds, even though most Liberals have been quite critical of, of what he did about the ministries. Look, of course there's a little bit of politics in it. Hey, guess what? This is politics. But I still think it's very significant and I still think it's a legitimate censure motion in light of what happened. And I think his speech in response to it, which no doubt we'll, we'll go into a bit, I thought it came across as a bit belligerent. I think it came across as unapologetic, even though there was a, a small acknowledgement in there that what he did was ultimately unnecessary. It was hard, Hugh, for him not to have those sort of acknowledgements, even just in a minor way, given the report that had been done by an eminent former High Court judge that was handed down showing so many scathing elements. But he cherry-picked in his speech the things that were said by the Solicitor General or in that report, which said that there was nothing illegal about it. Well, if that's the bar for political leadership, as long as it's not illegal, that's a pretty low bar, isn't it? And the point here is it was wrong, it was immoral, it was inappropriate, it was tricky. It's probably one of the reasons what he did that he's still in the parliament, Hugh, because who in their right mind could put Scott Morrison on a board or in an executive team, given government's rules around the practice of business these days in the aftermath of his political career? when he was secretly taking on ministries, whether he actioned them or not. So it's a big moment. It's the first time in Australian political history that a former prime minister has been censured. There's only been a handful of times that former ministers have been censured, Bruce Bilson, the most recent one. And the thing that I drew it as a comparative point to in terms of its significance, different scenario, obviously, but to me, it's comparable in terms of significance. When Gough, Whitlam and the Labor Party had a motion of no confidence against Malcolm Fraser during the 1975 crisis, shortly before they moved that, shortly before the election was then called, that was a totemic moment in Australian constitutional history. This is obviously very different, but I think it's similarly significant. I don't buy into the argument that this is just the theatre of politics. What do you think? Well, I think for one thing, you make the mention about it not being illegal. It will in future be illegal, of course. So that law is being changed to make sure that that can't happen again. And that says a lot though, doesn't it, Hugh? That says a lot. You know, like if something is legal, but gets made illegal, you I don't believe in retrospectively prosecuting someone. I think that's outrageous, but it does speak to the badness, if I could put it that way, the inappropriateness of the act, doesn't it? Well, I think that's true. The, the parts of the speech I thought were bizarre in a sad way. One was that he made the argument that journalists would have known about it if they'd asked him. Oh, my God. Which is just one of those kind of completely facepalm moments where, where you almost feel as if now we should, as a matter of ritual, at the start of every press conference, every prime minister... But he doesn't answer questions anyway, Hugh. Well, absolutely there was that. But, <laughs> but if you say... Right, I'm here, I'm the Prime Minister, I'm here to call a press conference, we're going to discuss whatever it is, pandemic responses or whatever it is at this. Uh, prime Minister, before we start on that, 
could you please inform us whether you have in secret gathered to yourself the powers of a whole bunch of other ministries? <laughs> Why would you ask it without the evidence you've done it? It's insane. While we're at it, Prime Minister, can I just quickly check? Have you secretly sought to do anything in the national security space that we don't know about? Prime Minister, while we're at it, I mean, it's just patently the most ridiculous concept. Yes. Have you taken, Prime Minister, while we're at it, have you taken up Chinese citizenship? Because apparently you've got to ask before anything, no matter you know how central it is, might be revealed. Prime Minister, have you been hopping around on one leg all morning? Because you know that's the kind of behaviour that your colleagues might like to know about if it's been happening. What else, Prime Minister? Oh, my God. What, what, what a preposterous defence. Now, the other defence is a rhetorical one, which is called defining out, which is a trick. Other than the time when I machine-gunned citizens down the high street, I have lived a blameless existence. You define out the thing that you've done badly to say, well, you know, other than that, I was great. So in taking on all these alleged pandemic emergency powers because only he knew what the pressures of the pandemic were all about because he was the only person prime minister and don't you know there was a pandemic, he then says, other than the resources power that he activated with regard making a decision about offshore drilling off the northern beaches, I didn't venture into other portfolios and make a bunch of decisions. I mean, it's it's the bit that you're othering out <laughs> is the whole point to the bloody thing. I know, I know. Like, if he had never enacted any of his roles that he usurped by taking over those ministries, it would still be wrong and we would still be having all sorts of discussions. But yes, you're right. He would still at least be able to say that I never enacted any of these. But when you enact one of them... Which has nothing to do with the pandemic. And that's the weird thing. But not others. You can't carve that out. You know, other than the person who I brutally slayed and murdered, I am not a murderer because I haven't murdered anyone else. It's absurd. Well, the other element to this in terms of the theatrics was, and I found this quite chilling, is that there is a famous photograph taken of in the parliament when Julia Banks got up to speak about bullying that she'd experienced as a woman in the Liberal Party. And there is the photo as all these men in suits get up and leave the house. So she's on her feet giving a speech, and all you see is the back of these rather anonymous grey men in suits, fat grey men in suits, all getting up and walking out. They weren't going to hear from this Liberal colleague because she was saying something that wasn't comfortable to her. And then you take the photograph which has gone round, and many people have seen this, of Scott Morrison looking a little ashen-faced, it must be said, sitting at his desk as a whole bunch of politicians in suits come up and grip him by the shoulder, give him that reassurance. Uh, Michael McCormack and the National Party veteran leaning over to sort of say something presumably consoling to him. And it's a really interesting body language dynamic. Julia Banks, everyone up and away deserting her, the cold shoulder Scott Morrison, who had behaved really in an appalling way, where he had been, you know, the bully, he had advanced into other people's ministerial areas. Karen Andrews has made quite plain, as has Josh Frydenberg, about what he feels about it, as has Matthias Corman. And yet they'll come and they'll circle around and give the love to this man. I just thought the whole thing was a bit tasteless. Look, I do too. And I think it speaks to the, if you like, what, what is profoundly wrong with partisan politics that he was being defended through that process. Now, this is not analogous, but I had similar views at different points in time 
with the partisan defence that Craig Thompson received from the Labor government at the time until it didn't. Uh, I had some similar views, not entirely analogous again to its defence of Peter Slipper at particular points in time as Speaker when they needed him for partisan political reasons. And there's been plenty of examples on both sides of that. That included the misogyny speech, of course. Yeah, it did. And, and, and that's why I actually think that as great as that speech was, I do think context matters. And I think it was a pretty poor context, even though the speech well outlives the context. But my point about this is not to deliberately draw on Labor examples to have a go at Labor. My, my point is that both sides do this. But I actually think what we saw this week is a more egregious example of it than either of the two that I was able to come up with off the top of my head when it comes to Labor, because this is more totemic. We are talking about a former prime minister. We are talking about usurping of ministerial roles. Most of us on the inside, Hugh, we know what privately his colleagues think about what he did and what they now think about him because of their condemnation of him that they don't want to do as directly publicly. So to see so many of them banding around him and being prepared to say this is just a political motion by Labor, we will oppose it. I think it's what stinks about party politics. And frankly, it's what also highlights why there are so many crossbenchers in the Senate, in the House, why there is a growing rise and continuing rise of the non-major party politician, because this is how major party politics works. You know, Peter Dutton et al. have been prepared to back Scott Morrison against what they all think privately about him because of the nature of the the mob mentality of party politics sticking together, the tribe that it is. And that, I think, is putting, and this is the key point, it's putting tribalism, major party tribalism, ahead of institutions and democracy and good process. This is one of those moments where I hate to say it in such stark terms, but he needed to be thrown to the wolves on this one, and deservedly so even more so after that bloody speech. If I was sitting there, Hugh, as Peter Dutton, and even if I'd made the call that we we're going to defend this bloke for whatever reason, after I heard that speech, I would have just stood up and just said, you know what? Not anymore. This bloke is an A-grade F-wit. I'm out of here. And I would have led and said, conscience vote to one and all, but I'm voting against him. Now, obviously, one of the reasons opposition leaders don't do that with former leaders is because we saw from Malcolm Turnbull how... Uh, how a scorned former leader can feel. And Scott Morrison is the immediate former leader. He's still in the parliament. He can actually create headaches every step of the way for Peter Dutton. But boy, the trashing of our institutional democracy, we've talked about this on this podcast before, by what happened with him usurping those ministerial portfolios, where he did enact, at least in one case, the decision-making of the, the new ministry, secretly as it were. It's just not good enough. It's funny because uh, presumably Scott Morrison wanted to speak in his own defence and you can't deny a man who's being censured the right to speak in his own defence. I would have thought if you were Dutton, probably what you'd prefer is that you go to Morrison and say, Look, I'll tell you what, here's how we'll play this. You just stay in your seat. I will get up. When the motion is moved and the, the first kind of 10-minute speech or whatever it has come from the Labour ranks from Tony Burke, I will get up and say, I'm entitled to speak for 10 minutes on this. I will take 30 seconds. Signing into the multiple ministries was, uh, was not a high watermark in governance, but it was done at a difficult time. This process right now is a stunt. And then sit down. And that would have been the grab that would have had to have been used in the news that night, not Morrison's kind of swinging in the breeze. Yeah. And uh, it would have taken a lot of the wind out of the whole exercise. 
Yeah, would have. You, you should become a political advisor, Hugh Rimmington. That's <laughs> that's a uh, that, that, that's a brilliant idea. I'm sure Peter Dutton would be looking for a chief of staff or a principal private secretary at some point soon. I, I don't know that you and Peter Dutton are necessarily the closest commentator slash politician that I've seen around the traps, my friend. But but you know that is sound advice. Look, uh, <laughs> I, I just say I know I'm high on his list. I am high on his list. There's no doubt about that. You, you're dead right, though. Like. And to be honest, I mean, and this is one of the interesting things about political advice, just as an aside for any listeners out there, sometimes the most obvious things, you just don't think of it. And I, until you said that, I just hadn't, I mean, I, I thought the concept of stunt, because I heard the opposition rabbiting on time and time again that it was a stunt, but to do it so succinctly, Hugh, that, that's the media skill, right? That's the recognition of the forced grab for the day, as you just told us. I think it's exactly what would have been the better way to handle it. But you're probably right. Uh, even if Peter Dutton and his Brains Trust thought of that. I suspect it was quashed very quickly by Scott Morrison saying, no, I will be speaking on this. Speaking of speaking, let's speak of The Voice. There's been a development since we last spoke, and that is, of course, the National Party coming out to the disquiet of some of the National Party to say that they'll oppose The Voice. Mm. And I thought this was really interesting. There's a now quite celebrated interview that uh, Noel Pearson, the old lion, gave on ABC Radio National, in which he said that he believed the National Party were the party that most got it. They've got rural and regional members. They understand the issues. And he said that this was being driven by Jacinta Price, the CLP, Country Liberal Party Senator from the Northern Territory, who sits in the National Party room. I think he's quite right. It is being driven by Jacinta Price. And it's a very difficult situation for the leader of the National Party to have an outspoken, articulate, powerful Indigenous woman in your party room saying this is bad policy and it serves the wrong people. And it's very difficult for Little Proud at that point to override it, to say, don't you worry about that. We're a bunch of white folks in suits. We know better what's good for you. Uh, He was kind of, in a way, shackled to her decision, even though it may not have sat that comfortably with the party room. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of fascinating parts to this. One is that what you've just described, I would agree, is is likely how this went down, that Senator Price was driving this and that the national leader and others felt compelled to therefore follow. But the optics to the layperson would suggest the exact opposite, even though I think you're right. You know, you've got a bunch of white men in suits standing behind an Indigenous woman who is taking the lead on it. And women, white women in suits. Well, that's true too. Not too many though. And, and it, it sort of it had the optics, if you didn't know Senator Price's strong convictions and views on, on a lot of matters, it had the optics of they'd all come to this conclusion, but they got the, the token Indigenous woman, uh, I, I say that deliberately in this context, to therefore make the announcement. Whereas, in fact, the truth is absolutely the opposite, as, as you point out. She's a very strong contrarian when it comes to her position on a lot of these things. But put all of that to one side, I have one very simple problem with this. I would be completely comfortable as much as it would be an uncomfortable debate once we know all the details about what the voice represents and what it doesn't represent with people taking views for or against it having a debate as divisive as it might end up being once everything's on the table it becomes akin to the debate around same-sex marriage for example it would be messy divisive uncomfortable but a legitimate part of a democratic polity and process to have that discussion But my problem with the Nationals taking the position that they have is very, very simple. We don't know yet what shape the voice is going to take. We don't have all the details yet. And that's part of their complaint that we don't. 
But you can't just say we're opposing it, that's our position, until you have all your details. You can say we're inclined to oppose it, you know, pending the release of the details. The definitive nature of them saying, here's our position on something that we haven't yet seen, is to me just not only anti-intellectual, but it's just ridiculous. Yes, I think Jacinta Price has made her position quite clear that she opposes it on every level on the basis that it only, I hate this kind of language, but the the notion that it uh, produces a new gravy train for a kind of inner city elite Aboriginal population, not, and I remember a, a, a line from Tony Abbott that he lived to regret a reference to authentic Aboriginal people, you know, as if people in the bush are, are different. And of course, the argument gets made that there are plenty of people in the bush who desperately want this voice to go through. Mm-hmm. But Peter Dutton is, has come up on this in which he said that there is building bewilderment in the population about what is actually involved. The government's strategy has some risk involved in that they want to simply put the question, which is very hard to say no to and for which there is a fair amount of support. Do you support a voice? in the parliament, you know, guiding decisions on matters that affect Aboriginal people, and said, once we've got that through, then you'll get the detail. But I do think there's a political risk there, because into that gap, conspiracy theories and all kinds of nonsense can can happen. However, if you give a lot of detail, then people can say, well, how did would this detail come from? It's been foisted on us, you know, and I don't like this little bit. And, and pe- many people don't want to be drawn into the detail. So it is a very difficult one to land, isn't it? Look, it is. And what you've just pointed out in, in the sort of the catch-22 of it, I think is exactly right about that divide between detail and, and no detail and, and the, the, the way you can run into problems either way. And, and I guess that is the issue here. Already, this debate has become somewhat polarising and already it's therefore demarcated itself from the 67 referendum on Indigenous rights, you know, uh, basically just providing voting rights as well as broader citizenship rights like any other Australian. That had a completeness to it in terms of agreement and simplicity and and process. This is already not that, which is disappointing at one level for a lot of people because the hope had been that it could mirror that rather than mirror more divisive debates like, for example, the Republic referendum that, that failed under John Howard's prime ministership. Let's take a quick break. Back in just a moment. Welcome back. This is episode uh, 138 of The Professor and the Hack. I am the Hack, Hugh Remington, and with me is the Professor PVO. PVO Victoria, Dan Andrews, who would have thought it? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's a case of stick with the devil you know or the lesser of two evils and all the rest of it because there, there is disquiet towards Dan Andrews' leadership. There's no doubt about that. I'm not running liberal spin by saying that. I think that that's the case in the community. I also know that that's the case within the Parliamentary Labor Party uh, and the broader labor organization down in Victoria. But, and this is an important but, he was comfortably the lesser of two evils in the eyes of the voters when it came to the Liberal opposition and the Labor government, including the direct contrast in leadership between Matthew Guy and Dan Andrews. And we'll get to the the teals and the crossbench in a moment, but politics in this country is still very much a two-party contest when it comes to governance and government. And Victorians absolutely comfortably stuck with the devil they know in the Labor government and with Dan Andrews as Premier. We'll see how long he lasts. 
in the aftermath, both on his own decision-making as well as factional and parliamentary decision-making within the Labor Party. He said he wants to run a full term, but they always say that as soon as they've been elected. How can they not? There's another thing that I find interesting in this. I mean, we can talk a little bit more about what it means for the Liberal Party in a moment, because in a sense, that's the big danger outcome for major party politics in this country and certainly for the Conservatives. But the Teals, I think, is interesting too. The Teals unquestionably underperformed. However, I don't think them underperforming is some sort of example of the decline of the Teals. Far, far from it. I was surprised that they did as well as they did by even getting close to winning as many seats as they almost won in a state election from where they were at the federal level. Because the sort of issues that the Teals naturally would run on were more federal issues around things like a federal integrity commission and the environment and climate change, and even gender politics and conservatism in these liberal traditional electorates when the Victorian Liberal Party is much more of a smaller liberal party than the federal Liberal Party have been. But the other factor is the Teals were running to knock out liberals in safe liberal seats when the liberals weren't even the incumbent. And it's a much more powerful thing for the rise of the Teals, at least to to get a foothold in a seat, to be when the incumbent government is of that conservative complexion like it was with Scott Morrison. So I'm surprised they got as close as they did, quite frankly, uh, even if they fell short in a number of seats at the end of the count. What does that mean for New South Wales? I think New South Wales will be the real litmus test about whether the Teals can run deeper than federal politics at the state level, because you do have a conservative long-term incumbent government, not as conservative despite Perrottet personally uh, on issues like climate change, for example, as is the case federally with Scott Morrison from his period. But it is more analogous. There are more seats where there are similarities on the on the North Shore of Sydney to draw parallels. So that, to me, will be the, the bigger test about whether the Teals can thrive at a state level or not, rather than the Victorian contest. And as I say, Hugh, your thoughts, but we'll, we'll get to the Liberal Party, which is, is, in a sense, the elephant in the room here. Yeah, just so just quickly on the Teals, is it the case that you believe that it will be a general rule that the Teals can do better against coalition governments than they'll ever do against Labor governments? I think so. I, I think once entrenched, however, Teals can hold on when Labor's in government. So, for example, I see no reason, I mean, you know, it'll depend seat to seat, but certainly Teals, once entrenched, should be capable of holding those seats even when Labor's in government, like we'll see at the next election under Anthony Albanese versus Peter Dutton or whoever it is. But yes, to get in in the first place, it is easier for the Teals to do that in safe Liberal seats with an incumbent Liberal government. The same way I would argue that it is easier for Greens to do likewise against Labor, other than with a transition of government moment in time, where Labor is muscling up in the centre like Albo was at the last election, and we saw some Greens win their way through. So yeah, I I do think that's the, the, the interesting part of that construct. And, and the other thing I would say just quickly, I think that the weakest teal seats federally when it comes to state representation was probably Goldstein and Kuyong down in Victoria. Uh, I think you know the, the, the traditional state-based election of independence across the North Shore of Sydney has been greater than it is uh, in those Victorian seats. So again, the test in New South Wales will also be greater because of that. You know, Yazali Steggles that overlap that state seat of Manly, for example, the federal seat of North Sydney that overlaps with the state seat of North Sydney, and so on and so forth. There's a much bigger band there of teal representation across three federal electorates that then encompasses more than half a dozen state electorates from within. That's a bigger threat, I think, for the Liberal Party. 
So Labour has now won nine of the last 11 Victorian state elections as Victoria lost cause for the Liberal Party at state level, it certainly seems to be, but at the federal level as well. Well, it's a real problem for the Liberal Party if that's the case. I mean, I do think that it looks like it's the case, but this is the state of Robert Menzies. Uh, Malcolm Fraser was the traditional heartland of the Liberal Party when Andrew Peacock came oh so close on a couple of occasions. That was because he was a Victorian carrying the Victorian Liberal Party. But 11 and a half years of John Howard's government from 96 onwards, followed by essentially all those, you know, sort of two or three terms in government and opposition of both Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison, with New South Wales Liberal leaders in between, you know, even Malcolm Turnbull, even briefly Brendan Nelson, the New South Walesization, which is not a word, but the, the predilection for the Liberal Party to become the party of New South Wales has not only shifted the ideology of the Liberal Party from its Victorian's traditional roots, but it has also weakened the Victorian brand of the Liberal Party and its ability to therefore hold those seats on the national stage, but even hold them in the state domain. And that, Hugh, is before you even get to the changing demographics out of Melbourne and Victoria, which I think are also contributing to the decay of the Liberal Party. And they're left in this difficult position now where conservative commentators are saying, oh, the reason that Victorian Liberals lose is because they're a pale imitation of Labor and they're a bunch of dripping wet smaller Liberals. Whereas they also lose in Victoria when they go hard ass and become a conservative Liberal Party because it doesn't fit with the wider Victorian ethos that exists within the broader ambit of Australia. So it is now a profound catch-22 for the Victorian Liberal Party. I don't think they win on either level at the moment as small L dripping wet Liberals or as arch conservatives because that's not either Victoria or that's not what the Liberal Party nationally has come to be. And so they do look like a really, really weak alternative to Labor. It's interesting that there was a map came out of the major cities of Australia that colour-coded suburbs where there was a higher proportion of people with university degrees and tertiary education. And what was interesting about that was that if you superimpose that over the electoral map, it is quite plain that the Liberal Party now gains its strength from areas where there is not a high proportion of people with tertiary education. And that is a profound, profound shift from being those areas where, in fact, they owned the professionals. They were the professional class party in the times of Menzies and, and Peacock and so on. And these were the, the, you know, the accountants and the lawyers and the families and the, all that kind of stuff were liberal voters. They have moved on to other, other things that are more attractive. Obviously, the Teal's picking up much of that. So you just wonder if, you know, have a little sympathy for Peter Dutton for the moment, looking out across where the Liberal Party gets back, how does it get back people with tertiary educations who have abandoned them to, to a significant degree? Not to a total degree, plainly, but to a significant degree. Okay, well, firstly, I don't see them doing what I'm about to say. So uh, I, the short answer is I'm not sure that they do get them back in anything other than pure fear politics, which is a small part of what I'm about to say. But what they should do, in my view, as a Liberal Party, is they should make it very clear that they don't get into the social debates, okay? They've got to house both smaller liberals who are progressive and capital C conservatives who are conservative, often on religious grounds. The answer is therefore not to take a stance on any of those debates, but to open them up to pure conscience votes every time 
and just say that that's not where we go as a as a party, all right? Because we are a broad church. We want people who are advocating everything from trans rights right through the spectrum of social causes to people who are prepared to be conservative who say no on religious grounds. We're opposed to all of these different elements in society, including drug liberalization, even as an example on both sides of that debate. They need to be able to say, we as a party don't stipulate positions on these things because we're a broad church and we therefore take in the broader you know, electorate in our representation. What we do, however, define ourselves on is as the party of small, medium and big business that understands the economy. So we champion, yes, tax reform and all those other things that doesn't win over votes necessarily, but does create economic credibility, but also the stuff that does win votes and including the youth vote, I think part of their stance on all of that needs to be to say, right, we advocate for things like, for example, access to superannuation for home ownership. I'm not necessarily saying that's a hill I would die on, but that would be a way to get the youth vote over. Unlike Labor, we want to help you buy a home in today's environment. And there's one way that we do it. Uh, advocating you know, flexibility at the sole trader and very micro small business end you know, all these sorts of causes that are likely to, A, differentiate them from the more collectivist interpretation of labour, but also actually appeal to a next generation. So you've got to look, I mean, my view is you've got to look at it from the perspective of somebody in their 20s. Somebody in their early 20s doesn't have an interest in all the crazy religious right-wing causes that a lot of older liberals do. But if they can look at the party and say, look, there are people there who hold different views to me, but there are people who agree and the party doesn't define itself on that. I have these wants in my life in tough economic times that are ahead, and the only party that's helping me to achieve them is the Liberal Party. Then that might be a cause that younger people could go to, including climate change, if they just say, we believe this is not a fight we're going to have. You know, we advocate it. Because you go to that is actually a really interesting matter because some people see it almost as a values question and others see it as a, as a very strongly economic question. Whatever it is, it's a huge question and it needs serious engagement by anyone who wants to be in government. So what does the Liberal Party, carrying around the baggage of the National Party, what does it do on climate change that is going to satisfy the people it needs to satisfy to win back those seats now held by Teals? Exactly, exactly. Hugh, when it comes to climate change, I think the Liberal Party, whether it likes it or not, needs to, one, stand up to the National Party on this because its interests diverge from the National Party if the National Party has morphed in recent years into being the sort of, not so much the party of the farmer, but the party of the resources industry in certain electorates that is not the big resources industry like your BHPs and your Rio Tintos who actually do support climate change action uh, because they have that corporate lens to go to it. I think that they need to be serious in these fronts. Businesses are. And if the Liberal Party is the party of business, then well, guess what? You're emulating that interest of business if you reflect a serious position on climate change. To win over the teals in particular, there needs to not only be that shift in, in a genuine sense, in a policy sense, but they need to look like they're not pandering to, if you like, the nationals in any way, shape or form in terms of this issue. It's, it's a tough one for them. Part of it, I think, with winning over the teals is to take over on all the broader issues, including things like gender representation, and then they don't have the wedge to be able to you know, take the seats off the Liberals. Because if the Liberals have a reasonable, credible climate change policy, but they also have good gender representation, they're also not opposing 
integrity in government, or at least in a perception stakes way, then I think that helps them. But also I would say this, the problem for the Liberal Party is that the Teals have already got their foot in the door because I think if they hadn't got their foot in the door at the last election, the years ahead are actually going to be tougher for Teals and like-minded independents than they have been because of the changing economic climate, which is more likely to see these safer Liberal seats come back to the fold of the Liberal Party if it can just provide a little bit of gender representation and all the rest of it. And you only get one Scott Morrison in your life too, so... Yeah, but having got their foot in the door, a lot of them could really hold on without a gigantic effort by the right of politics to try to get those seats back. Okay, so just before you go, just a little bit of colour. Anthony Albanese heading off to the home in Cabramatta in southwestern Sydney of Gough Whitlam. It is 50 years since the election of the Whitlam government. And I find this is quite interesting. Whitlam came up when Albanese met Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping brought it up, not Whitlam by name, but the fact that he said that 50 years ago, or nearly 50 years ago, it was to you, Australia, that we turned, China, that we turned to get a a connection with the outside world, essentially, and we didn't forget that. And that is something to be cherished, was a phrase that he used. So Xi Jinping gets gets the Whitlam connection. But for years, the, the Whitlam years were scarring to Labour. And part of Bob Hawke's achievement was to say, whatever you think Labour is because of your memories of Whitlam, the negative memories of Whitlam, we're now businesslike, we're going to make this country a better place. Hawke and Keating are going to make that happen. I think a sufficient distance has passed. So many of the voters have no memory of Whitlam at all that um, there is a kind of a swinging back to a kind of a sentimental, they can now feel safe to give a sentimental acknowledgement of the extraordinary policy achievements of the Whitlam government and to essentially bring it back into the fold. Is that, am I being, reading too much into that? No, I think that's right. I think enough times passed that the broad brushstrokes of the Whitlam legacy, which are significant, very significant, can be you know, if you like, put up on a pedestal by Labor, not just for the Labor faithful, but for the community writ large, because the principles around particularly health and education, but also a little, you know, some, somewhat wider than that, gender issues, you name it. I, I think that the broad brushstrokes now well and truly fit with where society is, has landed and where the ethos of our community sits. The, the other elements of the Whitlam legacy that the conservative have, conservatives have used successfully electorally for a long time have faded. And we're partially there, but not all the way there on the Hawke-Keating legacy, similarly when it comes to its achievements in microeconomic reform and some broader achievements than that. But there is still enough of a legacy in the current economic climate that's in front of us that there are older Australians who remember you know, the interest rates and, and some of the, the economic pain that followed those economic reforms as well, that that legacy is not quite in the same breath, broad brushstrokes versus electoral impact as Hawke and Keating, but it'll get there in the years to come. But yeah, certainly, you know, look, I, I, I would call myself right of centre, um, dripping wet social liberal, economically right wing on a lot of issues. But I look at Gough Whitlam even just now versus 20 years ago, not just because I like to think I'm less callow now that I'm in my 40s rather than my 20s, but I, I have a much higher regard for his legacy now than I did in years gone by. And I think part of that is the process you talk about, Hugh, and the recognition of of how important a lot of what he changed is to the things that we value most in our, what I would call a social liberal society. And interestingly, Albanese might lionise Whitlam, but he doesn't want to go Whitlam's way. No. 
he's been considered and measured about the things that he's done at the end of this year. He's kept a lot of promises that we have, a, it may have flaws in it, but we, we now have an integrity commission at a national level, a whole bunch of things. The voice has been put on the agenda. Gender has improved on another level, but he hasn't yet scared the horses. So uh, he's learned some Whitlam lessons as well. Uh, we're out of time, PVO. Always good to chat. We'll talk again. We might even do a video one so people can see us. What a horrible prospect before the end of the year. Well, I don't say this looking at you, Hugh. I say this looking back at myself. We'll make sure we spruce ourselves up a little bit better than right now for that one. <laughs> to everyone's benefit. <laughs> Good to talk to you, Peter. See you, man. You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.